Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, this is Nathan cornish Raley speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples. I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Constantino. Dr. Constantino is a speech pathologist and an assistant professor at Florida State University in the United States, who has been exploring ideas related to positive stuttering identity and how this impacts people who live with stuttering. And I've really been looking forward to our our discussion today. So uh, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you too. Thank you. Uh, To get us started, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Yeah. um, So I got interested in stuttering because I stutter. Um, Growing up, stuttering was a a, uh, sort of all-encompassing experience for me. I stuttered frequently and intensely and um, had had some nice experiences, had some positive experiences with speech therapy and which sort of led me into the field. It seemed like it would be a uh, fulfilling career for me. Um, And while pursuing my studies, exploring a lot of the stuttering literature, there's there's all this writing from past speech language pathologists who stutter, who are talking about this sort of conundrum that stuttering seems easier the less you fight against it, right? And, and how do we, one, like, how do we explain that? Like, why, why is there this sort of um, experience of conscious wrestling with one's speech? And how might we facilitate that in therapy? And so that, that became a, a passion of mine of, of trying to figure out how we might talk about stuttering and being a person who stutters that facilitates uh, more enjoyable stuttering. Um, stuttering that's, that's easier, less struggled, um, because you know, most of the literature suggests that those of us who will continue to stutter into adulthood will continue to stutter to some extent. And so if, if that's what we're going to be doing, how do we, how do we get the most out of that experience? How do we, how do we enjoy that experience? How do we uh, learn to um, not struggle against the inevitable? Yeah. And that's an interesting term, you know, more enjoyable stuttering. In your work, you talk about positive stuttering identity and, and um, this idea of stuttering gain, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about those concepts a little bit. Yeah, um, let's let's start with stuttering gain, and then we'll 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 move into identity. Uh, so this idea of gain comes from the deaf literature. There, there's a line of literature around deaf gain, and I was really drawn to to this language because I had some I have some sort of like personal pet peeves about. Um, the idea of like stuttering pride, there's nothing wrong with it if, if, if that's what you relate to. It just struck me as somehow chauvinistic, right? That like there was a, there was a elevation of myself over others. 
Um, but there, the, the idea of gain suggests that our experiences are, are nuanced, right? And um, like most human experiences, there are going to be uh, good things about it and bad things about it. And the literature is pretty replete with uh, examples of the bad things about stuttering, right? That, you know, it, it makes speech harder, it makes speech more effortful. Um, it, it's accompanied by this feeling of loss of control that can be very unpleasant. Some people who stutter fight so much against it that it can be painful. Um, there's all kinds of social consequences to stuttering from financial consequences to relationship consequences. I was less interested in further documenting that kind of thing and much more interested in, well, what experiences do we have because we stutter or maybe more importantly, when we stutter that we would not have if we didn't that are valuable to us? Right? What experiences are gained by stuttering? Um, this, this, there was a paper that sort of this concept was first introduced in 2016 at the International Stuttering Awareness Conference, um, Stuttering Awareness Day Conference. Um, and the theme of that conference was stuttering pride. And my thought was that if there's, if there's nothing good about stuttering, then, then like, what are we taking pride in? Then like, what is, what is the meat behind stuttering pride? I don't, I don't want to just take pride in my identity because, because I'm stuck with it, right? There, there, there has to be something else positive here. Otherwise, the concept seems seems a bit empty, seems a bit vapid. Um, and so, I wanted to interrogate this experience when when I'm stuck, when I'm going to execute speech and I cannot. What happens in that moment? And is there anything uh, positive that happens in that moment? And, you know, I, I tried to define the things I find positive about that moment. But for the most part, I'm asking my readers to, to do that work for themselves, to, to think deeply about when they're stuttering and to sort of bracket the negative, because we already know about that, right? And, and look for the positive. And so just to give an example to the listeners, because this is all rather abstract, uh, the, the thing I come to over and over and over again when I'm stuttering is there's, because, because I'm temporarily stuck, right? I'm temporarily out of control. That's a very vulnerable position to be in, right? It's like, um, it's like we're talking and all of a sudden I'm helpless, right? And if I can, if I can be unguarded in that moment of helplessness, if I can share that moment of helplessness with my listener, uh, it, in, it invites them to be vulnerable with me, right? It, it invites them to share in a, in a sort of mutual vulnerability that I think is, is the like necessary requirements for intimacy. And so, Stuttering has this unique ability, if we allow ourselves to stutter, if we're open with our stuttering, to uh, like really ratchet up 
the intimacy level of conversations uh, without needing to do much except stutter, right? That I can be passing somebody in the hallway and get stuck and they're forced to stop and look at me and reckon with me in a much deeper way than they would have if we had just passed by without even breaking our stride. And so I have found over and over again in my life that when people hear me stutter, it invites them to uh, share more with me, to share their own struggles with me, to uh, say things that they might not have said had they not heard me stutter. Um, so that's that's the idea of stuttering gain. That it's not saying stuttering is all rainbows and sunshine. Mm -hmm. It's saying that uh, allow stuttering to be nuanced, like everything else and allow it to have uh allow it to add something of value to your life and it might be work to figure out what that is for you as an individual but um if we're creative enough if, if we're thoughtful enough uh i think most people will be able to find something there i think that's a incredibly helpful way to conceptualize that experience and to to turn it into something positive and to like the phrase that you used, you know, inviting people into this vulnerable experience with you. So I guess transitioning on to stuttering identity, can you tell us a bit more about developing a positive stuttering identity and how, you know, stuttering gain is part of that process? Yeah. So this is, this is borrowing a lot from like the neurodiversity literature and the autism world in that, um, People with autism, or if they prefer autistic people, were, were um, realizing that uh, much, of, much of their therapy was not necessarily helping them to achieve a higher quality of life, but helping them to mask their autism, right? Helping them to, to appear more normal, sort of at, at the consequence of having to do a lot of like cognitive work under the surface to maintain that normalcy and that it was actually more beneficial to their to their subjective well-being if they were able to live as and embrace their lives as an autistic person uh, and so there was there's was this move to um like a, like establish an, an, an autistic identity and I've been in, in conversation with a lot of the people in that world and was struck by the parallels to stuttering, especially when we think about uh, like covert stuttering and people who pass as fluent, that we have many people who stutter doing a tremendous amount of work to appear quote unquote normal, right? But that it's, it, has a, it has a consequence on their subjective well-being and um, I think two, two, two papers that came out recently, one was my own work on, on spontaneity in uh, 2020 and Hope Gerlach's work on concealability um, in 2021 and 2023, looking at the effect of uh, effort, uh, effort, speech effort. My work on spontaneity was looking at speech effort and attention on negative life impact of stuttering. And there was a very strong 
correlation and an effect size of uh, the more I'm thinking about speech, the harder my speech is to produce, the more negatively impacted I am. Fluency did not predict negative life impact. So it had nothing to do with how fluent I was. It had to do with how much I was thinking about my stuttering, my speech. And then Hope's work on concealability showed a very similar effect for how much one conceals stuttering. So the more one conceals, the greater the negative life impact. And so you almost see this trend that the, the harder one expends mental and physical effort to be fluent, the worse experience subjectively they're having with speaking. And so I think when we're thinking therapeutically, if we really want to help our clients, we need to think about not necessarily how do we make them sound more normal. I mean, I think I think most people who stutter want to be fluent, right? That's and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I'm not opposed to to fluency. What I'm opposed to is sort of like a false fluency or like a like a f fluency that's supported by concealing and mental effort and mental gymnastics. And so insofar as, as our therapies are increasing uh, speaking effort in order to produce fluency, I think we're, we're, we're doing our clients a disservice. And so we need our clients to be able to uh, come to expect themselves to stutter, right? To, to, to see themselves as the kind of person who produces stuttering when they speak, full stop, and be okay with that, right? And so how do, how do, how do we do that? And in, in the autism world, there was this push for uh, this sort of identity work that like you are an autistic person, right? And you shouldn't be expected to not act that way or not be autistic. And you see like a very parallel line, analogous line of research and stuttering, especially coming from uh, Joseph Sheehan's work with avoidance reduction and more, more recently Vivian Siskin's work with avoidance reduction therapy, that the more a person who stutters is able to, to like take on the role of a stutterer, the less need they'll f feel to, to try to produce fluency, the less avoidances they'll have, the easier their speech will be. So my work on stuttering, positive stuttering identities is therapeutically, how can we help our clients to um, reject a fluent identity and step into a stuttering identity um, for the sake of their subjective well-being so that they feel less need to conceal so that their speech may become more spontaneous and therefore stuttering negatively impacts them less. Yeah. And so you recently published an article um, about stuttering affirming therapy and, and you mentioned three priorities and it sounds like you're, you're talking about um, two of those right there. I wonder if you could walk us through what a stuttering affirming therapy approach would be and, and how do you start that with a client who lives with stuttering? And um, I'm, I'm sure it's a new concept to introduce to them. 
Yeah, so my so the three priorities I talk about in the article you mentioned are one, rejecting fluency, two, embracing stuttering, and three, creating an environment that's less hostile to stuttering. And the reason I put it in that language, rejecting fluency, again, I have no ideological qualm with fluency. I'm sure your listeners are hearing that uh, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm actually fairly fluent and I, I don't regret that, right? Like I'm, I'm, I enjoy my fluency, but I think I enjoy it because it's spontaneous. Right. I, I'm not I'm not shaping my speech. I'm not using techniques. And so it's it's actually not the, the fluency that I'm enjoying. It's it, it's the spontaneity. Um, the fluency is sort of an indirect byproduct of that. And so <clears throat> we're rejecting fluency, not because I don't want my clients to ever be fluent, but because it seems like working directly on it for many people can can backfire. And when we look at a lot of the uh, studies that sort of follow people who have been through fluency shaping therapies, you know, what we see is that relapse is very high for many of these clients. They're still thinking about their techniques. They have a really hard time automatizing them. There is difficulty in trying to take on this this fluent identity by sheer force of will and so we were talking earlier about like this experience of um stuttering getting easier when we stop struggling with it and so you have authors from like the 30s the 40s 50s 60s talking authors who stutter from Wendell Johnson to Dean Williams to Charles Van Riper, Joseph Sheehan, uh, Walt Manning, uh, all talking about like, how can we help people who stutter to, to stop trying so hard to be fluent, right? How do we teach somebody to try not to try, right? And that's like a perennially difficult thing, right? If anybody who's experienced any sort of anxiety, right? The idea of how do I think, how do I try to think less about something, right? It's, it's not, it's much easier said than done, right? Yeah. People just wouldn't have anxiety if that was straightforward. They would stop thinking <laughs> about the thing that's causing them anxiety, right? And so um, this, this first step, rejecting fluency, is not rejecting fluency because it's bad, but rejecting fluency as an outcome that I feel like I have control over, right? That um, I need to learn to stop fighting against my moments of stuttering. And the only way I'm ever going to do that is if I stop valuing fluency so much. And I I put this in terms of reaction to the moment. Um, So if you think about what's happening during a moment of stuttering, somebody is speaking, and then there's this this experience of being stuck, right? That I cannot proceed forward through my speech. And there's sort of a a brief instantaneous like decision point that happens there. Like imagine you're walking and you step in something sticky. 
you can react against that by reversing your stride, right? And, and moving backwards, trying to get unstuck that way, or you can continue forward, right? You can, you can not break your stride. You can, you can keep walking as you were and deal with the consequences as you go. And that, that first type of reaction, that, that, that backwards pull, that, that reaction against a moment of stuttering, I call a, a stutter phobic reaction. That's, that's a reaction that's, that doesn't like stuttering. Maybe that hates stuttering, that's afraid of stuttering, that, that, that wishes the stuttering had not occurred. That second type of reaction that, that enters into the moment I call a, a stutterphilic reaction. Right? It's it's okay with stuttering. Maybe it even likes stuttering. Right? It's 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 willing to see where this goes. I think most of us, starting in early childhood, develop primarily stutterphobic reactions to that feeling of being stuck. I think some of this is societal, right? Just that like we're punished for stuttering, from kids teasing us to, to uh, adults asking us to repeat ourselves and stuff like that. But I also think it's um, almost intuitive, right? That I feel stuck, I'm gonna yank myself backwards out of it, right? That, that even in the absence of, of societal hostility, these reactions would, would develop. I don't have data to back that up, but the these struggle behaviors form so early in children, right? Almost immediately after onset, that it seems to me that that some of this reaction must be intuitive. And so, over the years, over the decades of stuttering, you have this situation where that feeling of being stuck triggers a behavior in which the person is no longer moving forward in speech. They're either, they're either treading water or moving backwards. And they're actually never really able to, to get to that moment of stuttering, right? They, they never actually jump into the stickiness. They're sort of waiting for the stickiness to pass. They're almost like passively. So let me, let me give like a concrete example for, the list, for your listeners. Um, if I'm saying, I want to go to the store and... I'm stuck transitioning from the from the the to the store, right? So my stutter, you might say, is is on the the s. I think there's some argument about whether stutters occur at the transition between words or actually on the syllable itself. That doesn't really matter for the example, but um, so let's say I'm. It would sound something like I want to go to the store. Most of us, we hit that, that S, that stutter on that S, and we enter this, this feeling of loss of control. And what we want to do is um, maintain a sense of volition in our speech. We don't want to feel like we're out of control. That, that vulnerability I was talking about earlier when it comes to stutter and gain is is sort of uh, you have to learn to appreciate it, right? It's 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 not intuitively a pleasant thing. 
And so ways in which we can maintain a sense of volition when we're stuttering is by, say, escaping from that moment and, and staying on that sound. So that might sound like, I want to go to this store, right? As long as I'm starting over, I have a sense that like, I'm in control of this, right? I can restart, I can restart. And I'm just waiting patiently until I restart and I'm allowed to say the word. I might use an interjection. I want to go to this store, right? So like I'm, I'm restarting and I'm, I'm just waiting patiently. I'm in control of my um, right? I don't feel that vulnerability when I'm saying um. I might feel stressed out, right? Because it's, it's an abnormal behavior. I, I realize I'm drawing attention to myself, but I'm not naked like I would be if I just jumped into that ask. And so we're trying to recondition this, this reaction to that feeling to get the person to, to enter the moment of stuttering. Because only once they're in that loss of control can they begin to change it. Right? So we need to get them from this sort of um, backwards reaction to this forward reaction. So I want to go to the store when they're stuttering on that S calmly, um, they can begin to play with it. They can begin to, to exert volition while they're in the stutter. And that's really important for uh, making the stutter easier and shorter and, and more pleasant. Um, but we're fighting decades of like condition reaction, right? Of decades of fear of that of that vulnerable feeling, um, and so it's I think uh, you know this this process of of going from that stutterphobic reaction, that stutterphilic reaction, is slow. And I would encourage people who stutter and clinicians to to have fun with it, to have a sense of humor about it. That it's you know it's not stuttering hasn't killed you yet. <laughs> right. It's okay if it takes, it's okay if it takes a little bit of time. Um, you know, there's no rush, uh, that, that, uh, these are, these are hard habits to break. Um, but that even though we don't have control of when we stutter, we don't have control if we stutter, we do have control of how we react to it. And, uh, it can be a, a really empowering experience to, to exert some agency in the midst of stuttering. As you're talking, I'm kind of wondering how you would introduce these concepts to um, younger people. Like, how, how do you talk to kids about, I don't know, rejecting fluency and and gaining this positive identity? Yeah, I think with with children, the the conversations are much less abstract. Right? Like with adults, I can you know you can go into the weeds about it. With children. Um, we stay more on the level of, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to help you stutter easier, right? And uh, actually, the, the paper you talked about is, it, there's a case study at the end with a, with a school-age child. He's in his, like, early teens. He's, I think he's 12 at the time of the writing of the paper. Um, but generally, the kinds of things we're working on in therapy are helping the child to become more aware of what they're doing when they're stuttering, 
more more aware of when they're stuttering, so that might be helping them. And this is this is sort of basic stuttering modification work, like in that sort of Van Riperen identification phase, where you're can the person tell you that they know that they're stuttering, right? When they start stuttering, can they put a finger up? Can they hit hit a buzzer? Can they throw a block at me? Right? Can they can they do something that lets me know? I know I just felt that feeling of being stuck. Once they're consistently able to like recognize that feeling, they, they have the mindfulness to uh, be aware of when it's happening. Then can we then can we uh, exert some some agency in that moment? Maybe have them stutter in a certain way. When you feel that feeling, I want you to do a prolongation. I want you to do a repetition. I want you to, right? I, I, I want you to show me that uh, you can, even if you can't make it all the way through the sound, all the way through the word, that you can, you can stutter a certain way. You can exert a sense of control while you're in the moment of stuttering. Once they're able to do that consistently, uh, can they then play with the moment of stuttering? Can they sit there and, and, and extend it? Can they make it longer? Can they change a prolongation to a repetition, a repetition to a prolongation? Can they um, react to the moment of stuttering in a way that doesn't end the stutter immediately? Right? Can, they, can they show a sense of acceptance at this feeling? Um, and once they get really good at that, which takes quite a while, once they get really good at that, there tends to be much less um, um, avoidance, much less fighting against it. Um, I think a lot of the, the really deep change, a lot of the, a lot of the um, change that might eventually result in you know, uh, a sense of increasing fluency um, doesn't necessarily come until later. I think kids, because of their limited metacognitive abilities, just have a hard time thinking about thinking, right? Have a hard time thinking about their speech all the time. And I don't necessarily want them to, right? I want them to speak as spontaneously as possible. I don't want to give them like impossible, um, like mental targets to hit. But if we can prevent them from developing these stutter phobic reactions, have their reactions be as stutter feel like as possible, it sets them up for uh, avoiding less, concealing less, um, maintaining a more positive stuttering identity as they age, as, as they enter adolescence. So we've talked about the priorities of, of rejecting fluency and of valuing stuttering a bit. The third priority is centered on environment and advocacy. And in my reading of it, it seems like you ask the, the stutterer to do a lot of that advocacy and to, to do that work. Um, and I do want to talk a bit about, you know, what families and speech pathologists and other stakeholders can do to create a supportive environment. But can you talk a bit about, you know, the advocacy work that the stutterer is doing? Yeah, so that's, yeah, so that's, that's important because, uh, I think the way I always phrase it to my clients is you want the people around you to expect you to stutter, right? That 
it's our attempts to meet what is sometimes called in the disability studies literature, like com compulsory able-bodiedness, right? That society expects able-bodiedness. They expect a certain type of person when they're interacting. And when we fail to meet those expectations is when we experience prejudice, we experience stigma. And so one way to, to combat that is as long as people are expecting us to be fluent, we're going to feel pressure to be fluent. And so how can we, how can we change their expectations so that they're expecting stuttering from us? And um, there's one of the most well-researched ways of doing this is disclosure, right? Of, of just simply talking about stuttering, telling people that you stutter, telling people what to expect when you speak. This is, this is best done in a non-apologetic sort of straightforward way. And uh, what it, the, the, the effects of disclosure from the literature are actually quite powerful that uh, not only does the speaker feel more freedom to speak and stutter, but the listener's views of the speaker are less stereotypical. Right. All those all those stereotypes about stutterers that they're that they're anxious, that they're less competent, that they're less attractive, that uh, so on and so forth. The speakers don't seem to hold when they are straightforwardly told, um, "I'm going to speak, and you're going to hear me stuttering." Um, and so, disclosure can be quite a powerful tool for for making the environment more welcoming to stuttering. Um, Voluntary stuttering is, is another well-researched tool that uh, I think is just like a more subtle form of disclosure, right? Like you're going to hear me sounding a little, little, little like this. And so, so it sort of peppers the ground with stuttering. So you, so you come to expect it, right? It's, it's sort of a way of maybe stuttering in, in a more recognizable way of stuttering so that your listeners immediately go, oh, that person stutters and you don't feel a need to hide it. Um, the, you sort of hinted at the, the burden we're putting on, on, on people who stutter by uh, putting the responsibility on their shoulders to do this advocacy work. And I, I, I agree, it would, I think parents, teachers, speech language pathologists can, can do much of this work um, and and should do much of this work. Um, however, I also think that uh, people who stutter are going to find themselves in situations where there's nobody else but them to do that advocacy work. And so, uh, yes, I, I don't want to let other people off the hook. But when it comes down to it, it's going to be uh, people who stutter who are, I think, on the vanguard of doing this. Yeah. So let's talk about, about, you know, what others can do to create that environment and, and how they can be supportive of somebody that's going through this, this process of developing this identity and, and rejecting fluency and um, valuing stuttering. I think, uh, you know, it's luckily we live in a time where I think understanding alternative identities is becoming more and more mainstream, right? that, that people are 
more and more able to recognize that um, it's authenticity is healthy, right? That that allowing people to be who they are can give them a higher quality of life. And so something I think that happens a lot, especially for people who stutter, who have coped by concealing and are highly fluent, right? people who we might say pass as fluent, uh, that, work, that work might be exhausting. And so they're, they're trying to learn to uh, embrace this role, this identity as a person who stutters, and nobody in their life quite understands. Like you seem to be able to talk fluently and you're going to speech therapy and yet you're stuttering more or you didn't even use to stutter, why are you stuttering now? And there's this sort of uh, miscomprehension or uncomprehension of, of the experience. And I have clients whose like biggest hurdle is not necessarily their, their stuttering, but the disbelief of those around them when they start stuttering and this unwillingness to give them the benefit of the doubt that like they just don't believe them right because they've been fluent for decades right and now and now they're trying to they're they're trying to be more open right they're they're trying to be more authentically who they are and their friends and their family are like but you don't stutter right i've lived with you for 5 years and i've never heard you stutter and so i think one thing, and this seems silly, I guess, because it's so obvious, is give people who stutter the benefit of the doubt, right? Like nobody would would choose this, right? It's not like, I don't think we have a lot of people malingering, pretending that they're people who stutter for no gain that I can think of. It's not like a cool identity, right? It's not like it's not like you get extra friends on, on Twitter or something if, if, if you're a person who stutters. So um, I think one just, like trusting people's experience, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And if it doesn't make sense to you, ask about it, right? Like it's okay to be curious. It's okay to be interested. Um, you know, saying there's a difference between saying like, oh, your stuttering is not a big deal. I've never even heard it, which is sort of dismissive of the experience and saying, Oh, I didn't know you stutter. Tell me more about that. Right? That's one is one is dismissive, one is curious. And so to those who have people in their lives who stutter, who who are trying to make the shift towards more stutterphilic responses to their stuttering, I think just trust them, right? Trust that the stutterer uh, is is being honest. Um, for those of us who have people who stutter in our lives already and, and want to do more, right? So that's maybe parents, siblings, friends, teachers, speech language pathologists. Um, I think it's hard because like stuttering is not necessarily like in the public uh, conversation a lot, right? There's, there's not a lot of opportunities to, to talk about it. It's not like a Political, a political hot topic. Um, but I do think stuttering is really, really interesting. Right? And I think it's, 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 it's fascinating to talk about. Um, we can do things like if you're a teacher or a speech pathologist, you can have posters on your wall that talk about it, it okay, being okay to stutter. 
you can wear um, shirts that talk about stuttering. You can just, if you have students who stutter, you can stand up for them. You can make sure the class knows that uh, that you want to hear them stuttering, right? That like them stuttering is actually an act of bravery, right? It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to be to be proud of, right? That they raised their hand, they raised their hand and spoke, even though it was tremendously difficult. And so like that's that's something to praise them for, not like in a in a condescending way, but that um, if other students are are giving them a hard time, that that it be known that uh, that's unacceptable. Um, I think parents, um, people who hear your children stutter might not understand, right? Like what's going on. And so in the same way that we're, I'm asking people who stutter to disclose, to explain stuttering, uh, you can do the same thing, right? This is my son. Uh, he stutters. He's He's, he's working on being much more open about it. And I think he's doing a great job. I'm really proud of him. You know, um, just something simple like that, that you can do at an, at, at an introduction or even uh, bringing it up as an, as an aside, like ex explaining to people that working on stuttering does not necessarily mean that I will be fluent, right? But that uh, I will continue to stutter. Um, can really help people understand that perspective switch, right? Like if, if I have cerebral palsy, um, I'm not necessarily expecting to walk around without uh, like a difference in my gait, right? I might just be, I might be going to physical therapy so that I'm stronger so that I can continue to walk around the way that I walk. <clears throat> And even if it still looks like I have cerebral palsy, that doesn't mean my therapy is not successful, right? I'm I'm walking, right? I'm 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 doing the thing I was training to do. I don't have to walk like you to be a successful walker. A person who stutters doesn't have to sound like a fluent speaker to be a successful speaker. Yeah, and one in some of your work, I've, I've seen you use the term uh, verbal diversity, which. Uh, I think it's a helpful concept and, and something to maybe share with others that people communicate and speak in different ways. And um, it's just another way to um, another individuality that is part of the human experience. Yeah. I think that's where like a lot of the work in neurodiversity is so valuable, right? To, to, I mean, they, they very consciously borrowed from, the ideas of biodiversity, right? That, that that the more biodiversity an ecosystem has, the healthier it, it is. And this idea of uh, diverse experiencing, di diverse subjective experiences adding to this sort of human biodiversity, right? This human neurodiversity, I, I, I think is compelling that our society is stronger when we have um, a diverse range of experiences, um, just like people from different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different religions. Um, stuttering adds to that diversity, it adds to that strength. Absolutely. 
Well, to kind of wrap things up today, is there anything else that listeners should know about a stuttering, affirming stance and, and approach? I, uh, I'm just happy people are interested. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, you know, I don't think this is, I don't think this, these ideas are necessarily new. Like we were saying earlier, people who stutter in the field have been sort of writing about this stuff for years. I think I'm just trying in my head. It's like a, it's like a, a, um, pedagogical issue. Like how do we help people understand? How do we help speech language pathologists facilitate this? How do we help people who stutter to, to react to their stuttering in different ways, right? Like the idea of letting yourself stutter is ancient, but cultivating that, facilitating that, I think remains a challenge. And so I'm, I'm trying to frame it in ways that make sense to say a person in 2023, um, that, that, that hopefully makes sense both uh, therapeutically for, for a therapist and, and their client, but also from the person who stutters point of view, um, that, it, that, that these ideas become more accessible. Absolutely. And do you have any resources or places where people can go to for support to um, cultivate understanding of this? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I am not internet literate. <laughs> I, I, I avoid most online spaces. Um, I, I mean, for my, and I'm, you know, there's, there's wonderful support organizations um, around the world. Um, I think places like uh, the International Studying Awareness Day conference that happens every year, it's coming up now, it's, it happens in October every year is, is sort of a great place to, to, to have inf information largely written by people who stutter. Um, I think there's uh, books, so I'm going to plug my own book, uh, Stammering Pride and Prejudice, which is a edited book looking at the experiences of both uh, prejudice encountered from people by people or towards people who stutter. I had to find that right preposition. Um, but also uh, the ways in which people who stutter have, have been able to find the good, the gain in their stuttering. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think people's best source of resources are actually other people who stutter usually, that support groups in your area can be really powerful. Um, podcasts like this one, uh, <clears throat> Stutter Talk is is a another podcast that has a wealth of I think they're on something like seven hundred something episodes hmm. now. So a lot, a lot, a lot of positive information about stuttering. Um, I wish I could point people to, towards more internet resources, and I, I find the internet very distracting. And just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well. Um... Yeah, for those who are comfortable with uh, internet resources, we'll provide some <laughs> links to uh, some of the things we talked about today, and and um, anything else that you know you think might be helpful. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to share any of the articles that we talked about. My my stutter affirming therapy article, my my spontaneity article, the stuttering 
game piece. Um, I'm happy to send it out to listeners. Well, thank you. And thanks so much for talking with us today. You know, I enjoyed our conversation and um, it was just a, a lot of learning in this for me and I think for our listeners as well. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the invitation and the interest. I appreciate it. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.